that line, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. Of course, we know that's an artistic expression just to express, wow, it cost a lot. But in reality, we know exactly what it cost. And that word is everything. But what we also need to be reminded of this morning is what he bought for us. He bought our freedom, and our freedom was paid in full, meaning we can live 100% free. And you've heard the term, you get what you pay for. But I believe when God looks at his church today, he's saying, my children are not getting what I paid for. Because I paid for 100% of their freedom, but some of them are only cashing in 50% of it. 75% of it, 95% of it, and and I have died on the cross so that they could be completely free and so that they could be my agents of freedom to the rest of the world. And I believe, it reminded me of a story, uh, just something that's probably happened countless times. When I went out to use the garden hose and I turned it on full blast and it was only trickling out. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, I have really bad water pressure. And then as I start to pull on the hose to move it to where I need it, all of a sudden, there was a kink that comes unkinked. And for those first few seconds, the water gushes out uncontrollably. And you spraying water on stuff you didn't plan on getting wet. And I believe that the church collectively has a kink in their hose. And it comes from generations of compromise, generations of lies, generations of things that should not be being accepted as normal. And we don't even realize there's a kink in our hose because we continue to function. The water continues to come out, but we are blind to how restricted we have become. And church, the world needs an unhindered church. The world needs Christians with unkinked hoses to be able to bring the fountain of life that we're promised would bubble up within us because we're called to make things around us grow. Amen? It's time to unkink the hose. Amen? Turn to your neighbor. Give him a high five and tell him to unkink the hose. And then you can be seated. Thank you, Jesus. You the man. Thank you, sir. Let's give it up for Joseph for being such an awesome guy who grabs my table for me every week. That was weak. Come on. Joseph deserves better than that. I love that guy. Can I just say, can I just brag on Joseph for a little bit? I love that man. And man, what a blessing to our church he is. And he has just come and just brought a heart of worship. Not not saying we didn't already have a heart of worship, but man, he brings something to the table, doesn't he? And I've appreciated getting to know him on a personal level. He's going through Rooted with us on Thursday nights. And just this man's, um, his vulnerability, his honesty, his transparency, and his passion for God and for people, it's contagious. And I just, I love you, Joseph, if you can hear me, wherever you are. (laughs) There he is. There he is. Praise God. Yeah. Again. I think sometimes we forget, we, 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 we spend so much time focusing on what he paid that we forget what he paid for. And I'm sick and tired of going through life knowing that I'm not getting everything he paid for. 
living life restricted when I've been given all the tools that I need to live completely unrestricted. Um, there's a Disney uh, Pixar movie uh, called Inside Out. And I love it, Carissa, because I feel like it really gives us an insight into how strongholds work in a lot of ways. And the reason why I also love it is because you preach a message called uh, Change Comes from the Inside Out, right? And so whenever I read that title, I think of it and I'm like, and it ties into it. And so in this story, the main character is a, is a young preteen uh, named Riley who moves from Minnesota all the way over, I think, to California, like San Francisco. I think that's what it is. And deep down, she's upset and she's angry with her parents because she misses home. She misses playing ice hockey on a frozen lake. And it goes through all these memories that she has that are fond memories. Um, but she knows that they had to move and she tries to be a good daughter. And so um, instead of processing those emotions and those feelings and those thoughts with her parents, she feels like she has to put on a brave face. And so she just pretends like everything is okay until suddenly it reaches a boiling point and it's not okay anymore. Anybody been there before? Maybe as a parent, you felt like you had to put on a brave face for your kids, right? You couldn't show them that you were weak. And so you, you need to make them, if, if you feel like it's not okay, then what's going to happen to them? If mom's upset, if dad's upset, how are they going to be handled it? And so you put on this mask and you pretend like everything's okay and you shove it down. Well, how many of you know that you can only do that for so long? Because parents are people too, Right? Whatever you are, whether you're a child, an adult, you're young or you're old, um, you can only do that for so long. And so what happens is she creates this prison in her mind and not dealing with her grief and holding on to this anger and resentment kept her in this prison. And it was the truth alone that was able to set her free. And so what happens is she's driven to the point where she says the only answer is to run away from home. She buys a bus ticket and she plans to ride it all the way back to Minnesota. Now, how many of you think she thought that through? Like, what is she gonna do when she gets there? Who she's gonna stay with? How is she gonna eat? She didn't think any of that through. And that's how strongholds work. See, when we hold on to stuff and we believe a lie and we live according to that lie, it causes us to make very damaging decisions that, that hurt us. And in this situation, she was about to hurt her parents in a major way, hurt them with fear and worry for her safety. Um, when, how many of you know that when your kids start going wayward and they're struggling, uh, it's easy to just put that upon yourself and say, I must be a terrible parent, Right? And so she was going to hurt herself and her parents in the situation. And at the end of the movie, the only thing that sets her free is she allows herself to feel the sadness and process her grief with her parents. And when she learns that her parents love her, and when she learns that her parents also share in her grief, and they miss Minnesota too, suddenly reconciliation takes place and she's able to heal and move on. I'm talking to you this morning about strongholds. And I want to stop and pray right now. Father, we come before you in the name of your son, Jesus. And I pray that the spirit of fear be driven out of this place in Jesus' name. I pray for all of those who, when they heard the word stronghold, they shrunk back in fear and they already have their guard up. They're saying, don't take me there. Don't make me remember those memories. Don't make me process those feelings. And I pray, Jesus, that they would understand that what they're doing today, they're not opening up to a pastor. They're not just opening up to someone sitting at a table, but they're opening up to their creator and their heavenly father. And you can be trusted with their pain. And I pray you bring healing to us today in Jesus' name, amen. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, Paul gives us a little insight into how strongholds work. He says in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. Somebody say divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against 
the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So what's happening here in this letter to the Corinthians is there's these false teachers that have come into the church in Corinth and they're bad-mouthing Paul. And they're like, yeah, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Follow us. We have greater knowledge. We're, we're better leaders. Like, he's a good guy and everything, but like, this is how it really goes, right? And so they're challenging his authority. And they're even saying stuff. He addresses in the letter that they're saying stuff like, oh, he's all bold in his letters, but when he comes here, he's all meek and humble and nice. And so they're, they're questioning his manhood and his leadership. And so this letter is in part in response to the lies that are being spewed out by these false teachers. And so what he's saying is, you say that I'm weak in person, but you've got to understand, I might seem weak to you because I battle not against flesh and blood. I'm not coming in ready to throw hands with you. I'm coming in because I have weapons of warfare that are not of the flesh, and they have the power to tear down the strongholds, which is the real reason why you're operating the way you are, because you're operating within the stronghold, trying to sow division in God's church. And so there's something at work. You're just a puppet, and I'm going after the one who's pulling your strings. And that's what Paul is saying here. And he gives us a lot of insight into how strongholds work. Strongholds, I will define this way, and it'll be on the screen. A stronghold is a mindset, a value system, or a thought process that hinders your growth. So every time you made an excuse for why you couldn't do something, there's a chance that there was a stronghold involved in that, right? Or every time because of fear, you never uh, stepped out and took the opportunity for that promotion or to, or to um, step into a leadership role or whatever it may be, there was a stronghold in your mind that served as a limiter upon your life and it was holding you back. And he says, we destroy these arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So what he's saying is that a stronghold comes up as a lie that comes against the knowledge of God, saying, I know the Bible says greater is he who is in me than he that is in the world, but you are not the right guy or the right girl to do this. You're too weak. You, um, you don't have a good speaking voice. You're not a leader, whatever it may be. It comes against the knowledge of God. And so you might feel God pulling you in a certain direction, but then there's this other voice, and, and Carissa's done a good job teaching us about this, right? There's two voices, and which one are you going to come into agreement with? And so Satan comes, and he is in direct opposition with the truth of God. And we're like, you know what? What he's saying kind of makes sense. Because what it does is it, it testifies with the insecurities that I have inside of me, right? And so it makes sense to me because that's kind of how I see myself when I look in the mirror. And so it's easier for me to attach myself to that lie because it seems to match up with, with my reality. But the truth of God transcends our reality. We'll get to that later. And so we need to understand that if stronghold is a mindset, then strongholds exist in the mind, right? In the mind. And so we are so quick to blame outside circumstances on the way we feel when in reality we can wear ourselves out warring against these outside circumstances when all the while we're doomed before we start because we're not addressing where the stronghold truly lies. So many of us share. Here's something that is heavy on my heart today. As the church in general, I believe many of us share mindsets that hinder the growth of the church. These are common, accepted, agreed upon strongholds. And the problem is widespread and God says, at least for this church, today, it's time to tear those things down. 
no matter how long we've become comfortable with them, no matter how long we've accepted them as normal, it's time for them to go. You know, God said to, um, to Cain before he killed Abel, he said, sin is crouching at your door. And it wants to destroy you, but he says, you must master it. You must subdue it. That word crouching in the Hebrew is also used many times to describe not just someone who's uh, or a beast that's getting ready to like pounce, but it can mean to be stretched out. And so to me, I visualize a beast that is not only crouching at your door, but sleeping and at rest there. Because that's what happens is sin does its destructive work when we become so comfortable with it, so used to it being there that it feels like it's at home. And so it's able to be at rest in your home. And no beast that seeks to devour you should be at rest in your home. But we have things that we have refused to address that are hindering our growth. And not only hindering our growth, but the the Bible says that the devil comes to kill, steal, and destroy. The devil is not some red guy with horns and a pitchfork that tries to tempt you and get you to stumble. The devil wants your soul. The devil wants you to burn for all eternity. And in the meantime, he wants to wreck your life, wreck your family, destroy all your relationships. So why would you for a second entertain anything that scum says? But that's what we do. I have a, a niece who, um, she broke her hip, and it was a bizarre injury. To this day, she's, she's not exactly sure how it happened. And in the process, she damaged her growth plate. And so as a result, the doctor um, diagnosed that this growth plate was damaged, and he said, we need to do something about this because if this growth plate is out of place and it's damaged, then it won't do what it's supposed to do. And so what will happen is that growth plate serves a purpose in making sure that your bones have room to grow. And if nothing was done about it, then she could have ended up with one leg longer than the other because that bone would not be able to grow because the growth plate was not there to serve its purpose. And so as a result, she had to have surgery. And I was talking to my sister about this to make sure I had all the facts right. And I think she said she has five pins in there that remain in order to make sure that this growth plate stays in place and does what it's supposed to do. And so the, the remedy for this injury was very invasive. And the recovery, I'm sure, was very painful. Yet if the damage was not addressed, the growth would have been hindered. Likewise, the remedy for strongholds in our life is to allow the truth of God's word to open us up and confront the lies that we have accepted as truth. And see, the body of Christ, I believe this, is walking around right now with one leg longer than the other, and we're supposed to walk straight, and we're supposed to resemble Jesus Christ in the way that we love one another, and yet there's division in the church, and the way that we give generously, and yet we uh, thirst for wealth, and, and, and we, we are greedy, and, and we do all these things that cause us to walk crookedly because we have not addressed that which the enemy has planted within us that we have accepted as the truth. Something needs to be done about it, but let's be real. It's scary, right? And it hurts. It's it's the splinter analogy, right? Little kid has a splinter. It hurts a little bit. But if you can't get it with tweezers, you got to get a needle and you got to start to dig the skin out around it. And guess what? That hurts more than the splinter hurts. And so the child is saying, no, thank you. I'd rather have the splinter. But the parent continues to dig at it. Why? Because he knows if the splinter remains, then it's going to get infected and it's going to become way more painful. And in some rare cases could even become life threatening. And so this morning, uh, I want to use some testimony time, some story time to encourage somebody at your table to trust God 
with their pain today, to trust God to go in and do the work that needs to happen so that our growth is not hindered. And so what I would like to do is to invite you at your tables. If you're somebody who can maybe describe a time when in spite of the pain, you allowed God to address those strongholds, those mindsets, the pain of your past in your mind. And what was that like? How are you experiencing freedom in that area of your life today? And so if you've been there, if you've been on this journey and God has set you free and taking you through um, a time of healing, would you encourage your table today by sharing your testimony? And if that's not you, you haven't experienced that, stay tuned because you're going to hear a powerful word today. So let's take a few moments to share at our tables. Right. Well, I know that was probably a really uh, mixed bag for some tables. There are some tables where maybe it seemed like nobody had anything to share. And then there were some other tables where someone had a story that had everyone's attention, right? Um, but my prayer is that after today, you'll have a story. Amen? Romans chapter 12 Verse 2, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And there's two words that I want to compare and contrast, conformed and transformed. See, the word conformed in the Greek means assuming a similar outward form or expression by following the same pattern. And so when you think of that definition, you think of trends, right? What's trending uh, the latest fashion trends, the, the styles, uh, the latest hashtags that you see on social media, the latest uh, TikTok challenge videos, right? And of course, we make some of the dumbest decisions when we conform. Uh, we see that there are uh, teenagers all over the world that are ending up with injuries because they're conforming to things that they've seen on social media, challenges and for this, this idea that they're going to get famous if they like snort cinnamon or something stupid like that, right? We do stupid things when we conform. And so conforming is uh, seeing what's happening on the outside and then reproducing it in yourself. Now let's look at the word transformed. It comes from this Greek word, which I can never pronounce Greek very well. So it's like, do I just not say it or do I try to pronounce it and sound ignorant? Um, But it's certainly, um, it's a word where we get the word metamorphosis, right? And the prefix of this, meta, means change after being with. Somebody say being with. Very significant. Change after being with. And then the suffix means changing form in keeping with inner. Somebody say inner reality. And so between these two words, uh, regardless of the definitions in and of themselves, we see that there is a contrast between outward behavior and inner change. Conformity is something that happens on the outside. And conforming comes from outside influences, but transformation comes from where, Carissa? The inside out. There we go. Sorry. Whenever you guys are here, I just pick on you. I'm sorry. I just love you guys. And so here we have this contrast between inside and outside. See, conforming is easy, right? Conforming is monkey see, monkey do right? I saw it on a video. I'm going to try that for myself and see how many likes I can get. Monkey see, monkey do. But transformation requires a focused inner working or a renewing of the mind, as Paul says. And the New Living Translation, it's simplified into this, changing the way you think. Changing the way you think. I want to tell you this about strongholds. Strongholds are mental prisons built of walls of lies. 
in tearing them down must involve the rejection of the lie. Another word for that could be called repentance and coming into agreement with the truth, which we'll call belief. Does that sound familiar? Repent and believe. Is that not the requirements for salvation simplified and boiled down? Repent and believe. It means change your mind about your old way of life and your old way of thinking and believe and put your trust in Jesus and follow him from this day forward. And we understand that as a requirement for salvation, but what we don't understand is that the same process that saved you is the process that saves you. It is the process that continues to save you. And so that process sets you free. And it's a process that needs to be continued. Freedom comes from a rhythm of repentance. The Bible says um, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. I believe that that is in the present and ongoing tense. And so that implies that we will sin probably again. And when we sin, we are to repent again. You can, you can argue whether or not maybe you're, whether you're already forgiven or not, but there must be repentance for you to be healed and for you to move on. You need to change your mind about what you've let come and set up residence in your heart. And so that word repent, let's define that now. And you're going to find something very interesting here. The word repent comes from that same prefix, meta. So it starts with change after being with. Somebody say being with. And to think differently after. After a change of mind to repent, literally think differently afterwards. And so transformation is the result of this. Transformation is a result of repentance, changing the way you think after being in the presence of God. So what do repentance and transformation have in common? They both came as a result of being with or encountering the presence of God. You got to understand that when it comes to breaking free from strongholds, it begins and ends with encountering the presence of Jesus Christ. Freedom from strongholds comes from changing your mind after being with God. And I want to challenge you this morning to change your mind. Let's pause for a moment. And as we get into today's scripture, I want to invite you to stand with me and to grab your Bibles. And as especially, we do this almost every Sunday. But especially when we're talking about strongholds and tearing them down with the truth of God's word, let's make a statement to our mind about what this is that we hold in our hands. So we're going to read this together with me on the count of three. One, two, three. This is my Bible. It is God's word. When I read it and live it, I will become everything it says that I am. Now, if you'll remain standing while I read this passage... This is uh, Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 11 through verse 16. It says, Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abizer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat in the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero! The Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with you, why has all this happened to us? Anybody ever asked that question? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Anybody ask that question? Somebody just asked that question recently. Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. 
Amen. You can be seated. Today, I want to confront four common lies that form strongholds. And we're going to confront them with the truth of God. So let me give you a little context to this passage here. If you go back to Judges chapter 2, what you find out is that after Joshua finally leads the Israelites into the promised land, his generation dies off and another generation grows up that does not fear God. It says in Judges chapter 2 verse 10, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. So we live and are the result of, we live in and are the result of a generation that does not and did not acknowledge God. Somebody testify, amen? Is it it plain? Is it obvious? In Proverbs 3, 6, we're instructed in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your your paths. See, the only way we live a life of freedom and the fullness that God has designed is to acknowledge him in every area of our lives. And so what happens is when we fail to acknowledge God in any area of our life, our path is made crooked and a stronghold is formed. So whichever area of your life that you you section off and that you set aside uh, for your own purposes, those, those habits that you've decided you're not willing to give up, um, uh, that, that insecurity that you're not willing to, uh, to face up to, that fear that you're not willing to confront, those are the areas that are fertile ground for a stronghold to take root. And so here Gideon finds himself living in a generation suffering from some very powerful strongholds at the hand of Midianites who are very cruel masters. Very cruel people. And in verse 11, we read that the angel of the Lord, and we talked about this recently, right? The angel of the Lord. Most of the time when we read that in the Old Testament, I believe it is a pre-incarnate Jesus. Before we knew the name Jesus, it was uh, the the son of the Trinity uh, coming and delivering uh, a message to somebody. And so he came, and it says, sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah. What I love about this is God approaches Gideon while he is in the middle of his stronghold. He came near even as Gideon was operating in a stronghold. Many times, church, we remain in bondage because we think God loves some future version of ourselves. God loves the version of Joe that gets it all together. God loves the version of Joe who no longer struggles with this anymore someday down the road. But you got to understand that God is a God that knows all of your weaknesses and it will not hinder him from coming near to you or speaking to you. And so oftentimes we have closed ourselves off to his voice because we think that we are not worthy of him to speak. And the truth is we are not worthy but we've been made worthy by the blood of his son and he wants to come near and speak to you today. He has proven time and again that he's willing to come near and engage us even in the middle of our mess. And so it goes on to say that Gideon was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press. Is there anything wrong with that? What's wrong with that picture? Well, because a wine press is made for grapes, right? But he's using it to thresh wheat. Why? The Bible says he was doing it to hide it from the Midianites, hide it from his oppressors. Think of what he must have suffered his entire life to bring himself to the point where he needs to hang out into this pit to do something that's required for his everyday survival. And so Gideon was successfully threshing wheat. It must work, right? It's not ideal, But he's functioning in this pit and he's coming away with wheat to feed his family. Let me tell you this, and maybe you want to write this down. You know you are in a stronghold if you're using something that was created to function one way for something else. 
and you see it as normal. I'll say that again. You know that you're in a stronghold if you're using something that was created to function in a certain way for something else and you see it as normal. My guess is this was a regular part of Gideon's life. It's time to thresh wheat. So I'm not, I'm not looking for a, a threshing place, but I'm looking for a wine press because that's just the way that I survive. That's the way that I'm gonna function. I wanna tell you this morning, church, that Christians today find themselves functioning outside of God's design and we've told ourselves that it's normal. I don't know about you, but I don't want to function. I want to thrive. Jesus paid the price on the cross so that I might have life and life more abundantly. And so why am I going through life just functioning, just finding a way to make things work my way when God has a perfect design and a beautiful plan for my life, but I won't take a hold of it because I've got a stronghold in my life. As Christians, we can go through life where the only time we pray is over our meals. The only Bible we get is once or twice a month on a Sunday in church, and we think it's normal. We don't share our faith with anybody because we don't want to offend, and we think that's normal. We, we view sex and nudity on television, and we think that's normal. Everybody watches the show. Look at the ratings. We have sex outside of marriage, and we're living in immorality with our significant others, but we're still together, and we're making things work, and, and I'm a father to her child, and, and, we, and we make all these excuses, and we tell ourselves it's normal. Nobody waits till they're married anymore, as if the expectations of God's word have changed. Like, no, 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 no. It's not normal to save sex for marriage. It's not normal to, for two virgins to get married. That's a rarity. That's an exception. Good for them, not for me. It's a stronghold. We drink and party on the weekends and sometimes too hungover to come to church and we say it's normal. We enter into same-sex relationships and now the society is telling us that it's normal. Listen to me. God loves you and wants a relationship with you, not normal. Not his plan for your life. You're selling yourself short. You're ripping yourself off. You will never be whole living in rebellion to God. That stronghold and that lie is keeping you in a prison. And these things have become so normal in the world and in the church that it has been, the church has been slowly conforming to whatever's trendy, to whatever's popular, and over time, we become desensitized. I remember one time, as part of a service project, we went over to uh, a lady's house to, to help her move, and that's what we thought we were doing. We thought we were helping an older lady who was in a wheelchair move, but in reality, we were setting foot inside of a hoarder's home. This woman had like 15 cats, and they were feral. Like if you got too close to them, they would attack you. There was droppings on the ground. The whole house smelled strongly of cat urine. There were cockroaches everywhere. She had piles of clothes just on the floor. When you go to pick up the clothes, 20 cockroaches just start scattering everywhere. And I remember the first things, as soon as we knocked on the door, she says, oh, just, just light and happy, like, oh, come in, welcome to my home. And as soon as we opened that door, it was like, bam! <laughs> and you're thinking to yourself, how can she function? How can she breathe in this place? But see, there's something that happens that the longer you function within a stronghold, you no longer notice your own odor. It becomes so familiar to you that it takes someone from the outside who's, who's not living in bondage, stepping onto your scene saying, whoa, this is not right, this is not healthy, this is not good for you. Many of the strongholds we share collectively, because a lot of these things are common within a lot of us, they've been firmly established 
because they haven't been addressed for generations. And God wants to reveal to you things you've accepted as normal that need to be torn down. Things where you would have just rolled your eyes before and say, that's just extreme. That's legalism. That's, a, that's, that's religion. When in reality, it's not religion. It's the opposite of religion. It's freedom. God says, I don't want you to be bound by that lifestyle anymore. I don't want you to be robbed of real joy. You think you know what real life is, but you can't even see what real life is because you have been in the stink too long. And suddenly, God is going to renew your ability to smell the stench. And you're going to begin to recognize, this is not okay. I should have a sweet aroma of God's presence upon my life, not the stench of sin and filth. And I'm breaking free from this bondage, and I'm stepping into the life he paid for. I don't want 75% of what he paid for on the cross. I want the whole darn thing. So it says in verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Mighty hero, really? Mighty hero. What characteristic of a hero was Gideon demonstrating by threshing wheat in a wine press? He was cowering in fear. He was hiding. He was only trying to survive, just trying to get by. God says, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. And so he gives him a title which speaks to his value, which speaks to his identity, and he reminds him that he is not alone. But he responds, and we'll skip down to verse 15. Don't worry, we're coming back to 13 and 14. But in verse 15, he says of himself, my clan is the weakest, and I am the least in my entire family. See, Gideon believed a lie, and we're going to have a lie and a truth that we're going to show you as we go through this process. The lie is this. Gideon believed he was not enough. That is a lie that I have struggled with throughout my lifetime um, in and out of season, right? Where God set me free from that, and then I realized, oh, I stepped back into that stupid lie, and it's time to confront it again and repent and break free from it. I'm not enough. I'm not enough to, to, to pastor a church. I, I might be enough to be an interim pastor, but I'm not enough to be a pastor of a thriving congregation. I'm enough uh, to pastor a church that just holds steady, but am I enough to pastor a church that captures the city of Phoenix for Christ? Those are questions that I've wrestled with. And the truth that God wanted to offer Gideon was that with him, he's more than enough. You're not just enough, but you're more than enough. And he would show Gideon this in an incredible, miraculous way. And so this stronghold in Gideon's mind gave him a perspective that minimized his worth and magnified the opposition. Things got out of whack. I like to use this analogy sometimes where if you've got binoculars and you look at them backwards, it makes everything seem really, really far away because it gives you the wrong perspective. And so you walk around that day, you might end up bumping into somebody, Right? But if you flip them around, it's like getting the perspective that God uh, gives you. And so he becomes large in your eyes where your enemy and your situation, your circumstances become small. But think about Gideon, like what must have driven him to this point? I think we need to validate his feelings, right? That's good therapy, right? We need to validate his feelings and, and understand what he's been through. I mean, how many times had Gideon um, throughout his life been victimized by these Midianites? How many times had he been threshing wheat and they came and took it for themselves and left him starving that night? Um, how long had he felt like he had no control over his circumstances, no real freedom? How many times had he been taken advantage of and made to feel weak and powerless? See, the reality was that Gideon and his people were paralyzed by fear and he was in that pit for a reason. He'd been hurt. Many times before, he'd been abused. He'd been taken advantage of. His experiences are real. And this was the reality, the truth of his reality. But here's something very powerful, and I want you to write this down. God's truth is prophetic. God's prophetic truth trumps reality. Because he doesn't just speak things that are, but he speaks things that are not as though they were, and it brings it into existence. And the hurt and pain that you've experienced is real, and it's true. 
Those of you that have been victimized, those things really happen to you and they really hurt and they should hurt and you, you should have had a hard time with that and it, it should have wounded you. But the stronghold comes when we believe lies about that experience. We are set free, not by denying the reality of what happened to us, but by identifying and tearing down the lie attached to that reality and replacing it with truth. In verse 16, God gives him a promise. He says, I'll be with you and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. And so what did I say about the binoculars, right? Gideon's like, I'm down here. You can get no lower than me. And what faces me is way up here. It couldn't be any worse. And God says, I'm going to give you a perspective that is so contrary to your reality that this army of 20, 30,000 Midianites is going to be like one person. And I'm going to whittle down your army to 300, and you're still going to have the overwhelming advantage. Why? Because my prophetic truth trumps your reality. So the truth of God brings the enemy into proper perspective. Verse 13, going back up there, he says, he challenges the Lord, and he says, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? The Lord has abandoned us. How many times do we equate our suffering with God's absence? And so the lie he's believing is, because I'm suffering, that means God has abandoned me. I am all alone because if he was here, this never would have happened. But the truth is that God is present and at work in the midst of my suffering. I wish God um, prevented all the bad things that would happen to us. But I'm thankful that he repurposes them and that he uses them and he works in them. I was just reading this morning. Remember I told you I was in the book of Exodus? If you start back in, in, in chapter one, you see that they were enslaved. But guess what? They were increasing and multiplying in numbers so fast that the, their oppressors were afraid of them. Do you think the Israelites had the, the, the knowledge to think to, to recognize the favor of God upon them in that situation? I'm thinking maybe not because they're people and they're thinking like we have brutal slave drivers that are working us to the bone. But yet even in that, God was preparing them for their great exodus. And so they begin to multiply even to the point where Pharaoh says, throw out all the babies into the river. All the males, let's kill them so they won't outnumber us. And yet God still makes a way. Moses survives and Moses is the very one that would lead them out of slavery. And so God is present and at work in the midst of my suffering. We tell ourselves I've been abused, oppressed, therefore God has abandoned me. And yet we see here that the Lord himself was speaking directly to Gideon. Strongholds. They can block your ability to recognize God's presence. They can block your ability to recognize God's presence. But you know what I really am encouraged by when I'm going through dark times? Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why will I not fear? Because you are with me. If you're in the valley of the shadow of death, you can't see the shepherd. You just have to trust that his presence is there. And in fact, sometimes he's even closer in the valley because he needs to be to lead you, keep you from harm. There's so much here. I got to speed this up. You guys will hang out a little longer with me if you need to, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, a few of you will. We really get tripped up with this, guys that we hold on to this lie. Because here's the thing about strongholds. Strongholds don't hold on you. You hold on to them. Let me say that again. Strongholds don't hold on to us. We hold on to them. And some of you in this room today, you've had terrible things happen to you. And your suffering is real and it's not to be minimized. 
but you need to understand that God wants you to know he did not do those things to you. And his plan is to take that situation and to wreak havoc on the schemes of the devil and to flip it completely upside down and turn it into freedom, not just for yourself, but freedom for those around you. He wants to step in and put the pieces back together. And so what would happen in this story here is God would take Gideon's stronghold and turn it into freedom for an entire nation. He says to Gideon, go with the strength you have, I am sending you. So the same guy that feels completely limited by his circumstances, his upbringing, his family, his situation, is being sent to deliver a nation from the repressors. Right there in the midst of feeling like he's weak and helpless, God calls him to deliver. How amazing is that? And so he was holding on to this lie that God cannot use him because he's damaged. Ever feel that way? God cannot use me because of my past or because I'm damaged or because of what I'm going through right now. I've got to figure all this out first, right? I've got to have victory over all of it and live this spotless life before God can use me. But the truth is God specializes in using broken people. I mean, look at his track record. I could actually say that um, in human reasoning, God is a horrible talent scout because he picks some messed up people. I mean, just look at his disciples. He, he chose a tax collector who was robbing God's people of their money. He, he chose a prostitute to be one of his disciples, someone who had been delivered from seven demons. I mean, this is, a, this is a group of misfits, but these are the people that when the Holy Spirit came upon them, the book of Acts tells us that they turned the world upside down, and God wants to do the same for you. In your brokenness, if you will answer his call, he will use you to bring freedom to an entire nation. God chose Gideon and called Gideon before he broke free from his stronghold. And the significance is not in who he picks, but in who does the picking. He says, go in the strength you have. See, God doesn't choose people based on their ability. He chooses people based on who they will become once he gets a hold of them. And I just want to ask, is there anybody in the house today that'll take a hold of his hand and say, God, use me. I'm willing. God frees us from our strongholds and anoints our hands to tear down strongholds. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Paul says, we don't, we don't war against the flesh, Right? He says, our weapons are warfare. They're not, they're not carnal. They're not fleshly. But we have the power to tear down strongholds. And so if we look a little further in Judges chapter 6, skip down to verse 25, we see that God gave Gideon an assignment. It says, that night the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old, Pull down your father's altar to Baal. Anybody catch that? Whose altar to Baal was this? His father. It was in his family line. A stronghold passed down from generation to generation. And yet God says, Gideon, you're going to do something about this. Your father's not going to tear down the altar. But you're going to tear down the altar on his behalf. It says, pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully, sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. Using as fuel. I want to tell you today, church, that God wants to take your brokenness and your pain and your hurt and your wounds and your scars, and he wants to use them as fuel. Praise God. God is redeeming everything. 
When we place it in his hands, he'll redeem it and turn it for good. He'll use it as the thing that fuels you to press on and to endure and to advance his cause and his kingdom. He'll use it as fuel for you to pour into other people that are suffering and wrestling underneath the weight of their strongholds. And because you went through what you went through, you will be exactly what somebody else needs. You'll have the words that somebody else needs to hear. You'll have the touch that someone else needs to feel. You did not suffer in vain, but God will give purpose to your pain. See, there's another lie we believe, and it's that no good could ever come from what happened to us. And God says, do you know who you're talking to? Have you seen me at work? Don't you tell me that I can't use what you've been through. Some of you, this just came to me. This is the Holy Spirit. Some of you think God can't use what you've been through because you think what you've been through isn't that big of a deal. You don't have a testimony. That's what you think. I haven't been through enough pain, so I got nothing to share. God says, I'll take your story you're so used to listening to other people share their testimonies because the people that get the pulpit, the people that get the microphone are the people that came back from hell. The people that suffered under the abuse of drugs and uh, abusive relationships and, and they came back from it when it seemed like it was impossible. And you said, that's why God can never use me because I've never been through that. And God says, I'm going to give you a pulpit. It may not be on a Sunday morning, but I'm going to give you a pulpit. And there's going to be, I'm going to bring people across your path that need to hear your story. Not some fabrication, not some exaggeration or some uh, enhanced version of your story, but your story. And it's going to connect with them right where they are. That's for somebody. See, see you're not sharing because you think you don't have anything to share. And God says, open your stinking mouth and I will bring power to your words that will penetrate the heart of the hurting and will be a part of their healing in Jesus' name. Somebody needs to receive that today. So no good could ever come from what happened to me, but the truth is God can use my pain to bring freedom to others. God not only wants to set you free, but unleash you upon a world full of captives that need to hear your story. But see, before Gideon went to war on behalf of Israel, God began a work in him to address the root of the problem. So finally, and I'll leave you with this, verse 27 says, so Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord had commanded, but he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. I want you to point out that he was still afraid. But guess what? He did it anyway. He did it under the cover of night. But you know what? When everybody woke up the next day, that Asherah pole, that altar was gone. It was accomplished. And I want to tell you that it's going to be scary for some of you. Don't wait till it's not scary. Or you'll never do it. If you have to do it under the cover of night, if you have to do it trembling, do it. Come trembling. There's a pastor uh, I heard tell a story about how when they got their first uh, big building, they were a booming, growing church, and they got this new building. It was this big, open, abandoned warehouse type situation, and they had an infestation, an infestation, and cockroaches, rats, nasty things like that. So they hired an exterminator and the exterminator gave them some very interesting instructions. He said, I want you to go throughout the building and I want you to open up every single door, every drawer, everything with hinges and leave it wide open. And the pastor says to him, why would we do that? I don't get it. He says, because I'm gonna go through there and I'm gonna exterminate every area that's open and any area that's remained closed, if it is not opened, will eventually reinfest the areas that I have cleansed. 
that I have purified. That's the same way it works with us. Listen, if you're willing and you're brave enough, God can do more in just a few moments at an altar that can be accomplished with 25 years of therapy if you'll trust him, if you'll open up to him today. I wanna challenge you this morning to open up every single door, even that closet in the corner that you've kept boarded up because it's too painful. God wants to give you an opportunity. He gives you an invitation today. Say, let me go through your junk. Let me go through the skeletons in your closet and let me do my healing work. So what I'd like to do is we're gonna end today at our tables. And I know it's getting late, but guess what? Sometimes God needs some time, right? And so I wanna give you a chance to, I wanna give you an opportunity to share a mindset, a stronghold hold a value system, a system of beliefs that you know is hindering your growth and hindering your healing. The Bible says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. It doesn't say that you're required to confess your sins to someone else for forgiveness, but it does say that there's a healing that takes place when we confess to one another. So I just want to encourage you and those of you at your tables, remember what's shared at your table. It doesn't mean it's open season to share it with anyone else. It stays at the table. I just want to give you and your table an opportunity to begin to break these strongholds off under the authority of the name of Jesus. We're going to pray for you that you experience freedom from these lies and God replaces it with your truth. So the music is just going to remain playing. We'll have no official close today. When your table's finished, go on your way, but please be respectful as ministry might be still taking place as you leave. Amen? All right, let's do it.